Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by William M. Bowden, the executive director of the Clement Center for National Security and an associate professor of public affairs and history at the LBJ School, both at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the author of the widely regarded new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink, which makes the case that the former president actually had something of a grand strategy to ultimately win the Cold War. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, its insights into the past, and its lessons for the future. Will, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Well, thanks very much, Sean. It's a pleasure to be with you. There's long been a narrative about Ronald Reagan's presidency that he wasn't a details guy, that he operated at the level of intuition and communications. Your book challenges this idea with respect to the Cold War. You show in several places, for instance, that the president was actively involved in key details about America's Cold War policy in this crucial period. Will, why do you think that narrative took shape during his presidency and has since persisted to this day? It's a great question, Sean. I think part of the reason why that image was out there is Reagan knew that there were some advantages to being underestimated. Uh, You know, he even though he was confident in himself and in his strategy, uh, he also didn't take himself too seriously, and he didn't mind if people thought that he was, you know, somewhat more detached or less less involved in, in the details. Uh, this goes back to his old days as a Hollywood labor negotiator, and knows that you know it can you can it can be to your advantage in a negotiation or or in public if you're if you're uh, un- underestimated. Another part of it is, as you know from the book, when he came into office, he was challenging the prevailing expert opinion and strategic consensus on the nature of the Cold War, the nature of the Soviet Union, what American policy should be. And so uh, and oftentimes it's human nature, especially among expert circles in which, you know, uh, you and I run in in, in different different ways uh, to think, well, if someone disagrees with me or challenges the consensus, they must be wrong. Uh, and so. By by doing that, Reagan immediately put uh, a lot of the expert class uh, on, on on the defensive, and rather than taking his ideas and challenge the status quo seriously, they were a little more inclined to dismiss him. And part of it, let, let's be honest, and as you know from the book, it's overall a very favorable assessment of Reagan, and I think that's warranted by the record. But on some issues where he was, uh, they were less of a priority. 
He wasn't attentive. He didn't get into the details. You know, being president of the United States is one of the hardest jobs in the world. You can't be uh, involved in everything. That was one of the things that had crippled Jimmy Carter. His predecessor was Carter was too much of a micromanager. Uh, and so Reagan would make strategic choices about which issues he was going to become involved in, which ones he was going to care more deeply about, devote his time, attention and political capital. Uh, and of course, this the standoff with the Soviets was one of those. I mentioned Reagan's intuition. One thing that is clear in the book and in your first answer is just how Reagan's personal view that the Cold War was indeed winnable put him offside the establishment view. Do you want to talk a bit about the prevailing view about the Cold War when he's elected? And what caused Reagan to see a scenario where that outcome could be, as it was famously put, quote, we win, they lose? Yeah, sure. So, and again, I want to speak with some uh, sympathy here for the prevailing consensus that he w- that he was challenging. So, I mean, we I think it's clear in hindsight that Reagan was more correct and that consensus was wrong. But one task of the historian is go back and try to recreate what the world looked to like to people at, at the time, right? So even though I'm critical of this consensus, I want to be fair about it. And so uh, um, just about every previous American pre- Cold War president, going back to Harry Truman, um, uh, and on up through Carter, had seen the Soviet Union as uh, primarily a status quo power, uh, something that the United States needed to contain and coexist with. But uh, it was more of a problem to be managed rather than a rival to actually be defeated. So this notion that, that Soviet communism could actually be defeated was just um, almost unthinkable. And there were good reasons for that, right? They had the arguably the strongest military on the planet. They had a large economy. Uh, we know now in hindsight, site that its economy was very decrepit and rotting and, and vulnerable, but that was not fully evident at the time. Sure, it was slowing down, you know, it was not terribly productive, but it's one thing for an economy to be stagnant, another thing for it to be completely, completely in collapse. Um, uh, and and so this, uh, you know, Reagan inherits this strategic framework and a lot of expert opinion that the Soviet Union will be a permanent part of the geopolitical landscape, right? They've been with us for the last 60 years. They'll be with us for another 60 years. Doesn't mean we like them. Doesn't mean we surrender to them. But, you know, the notion of actually defeating them, especially defeating them peacefully, was just fantastical. And Reagan challenges that uh, partly because he sees the Cold War as a battle of ideas rather than just a geopolitical standoff. And so he elevates that notion of the battle of ideas much more than even any previous president. Um, Partly because of his own convictions about the superiority of democracy and free markets and free societies, uh, partly from some of his discussions with former Soviet dissidents and prisoners of conscience who would give him firsthand testimonials about how awful life was there, uh, about the poverty, the destitution, the long lines for food, uh, the oppressiveness that how so many of the Soviet people uh, hated their government, had no confidence in it. And so Reagan just had almost this philosophical uh, conviction, this cannot stand. This is not a sustainable system. And he also had a real belief in the virtues of free societies and thought in a contest between the two, in a a battle of ideas between those two models, uh, he thinks that, you know, the the free society, the the American model, the Canadian model, if you will, as well, uh, will will, will prevail. And so that that was the, the situation he inherited. And those are some of the new convictions he brought in to challenge that. Another related insight in the book is that Reagan came to personally see the Cold War as more than geopolitical or or even an ideological conflict. He saw it in spiritual terms and understood that the Soviets' persecution of religious beliefs represented one of its biggest vulnerabilities. 
Do you want to elaborate on this point, Will? What did Reagan understand about the religious dimension of the conflict that others did not? Yeah, this is a very important part of the the Reagan story. So thanks for hi- highlighting it. Uh, so Reagan himself was a man of very deep Christian faith. Um, you know, somewhat. Uh, you know, its critics would sometimes deride it. Uh, obviously, he was an indifferent churchgoer. Right? You know, could be somewhat idiosyncratic in areas, but it's very clear now um, from his diaries, from his letters, from people who knew him that there was a very deep Christian faith there. Uh, and uh, similar to that, what he saw as one of the most iniquitous things about communism was its atheism, was that it could not abide any independent religious worship. Uh, the belief it could not abide the belief of any of its people in, in a higher power than, than the state. Uh, and so that's why every communist society that's ever existed has been very intolerant of, of religion. And the Soviet Union was one of the worst, uh, you know, imprisoning Jews and, and Christians, uh, you know, any religious believers who uh, weren't even necessarily acting as political dissidents, but just wanted to practice their faith freely. Uh, and of course, this was a situation in Central and Eastern Europe with persecution of, you know, Catholics and Protestants uh, there as well. And even some of the Soviet Union's torment of Afghanistan and its persecution of, of Islam, right? And so, um, so this was just uh, anathema to, to Reagan. Uh, he it just violated all of his uh, uh, you know, core principles about uh, religious freedom, uh, of human dignity, about the the right to, to freedom of worship and, and conscience. Uh, but he also saw this is a real vulnerability. Like you cannot be a strong, confident, healthy society if you are persecuting and tormenting peaceful religious believers. And so he made a real focus in his. Um, um, both in his uh, his public campaign to delegitimize Soviet communism about highlighting its religious intolerance, but also his personal advocacy. Uh, he devoted you know tremendous time to negotiating with the Soviets to to release uh, prisoners, uh, religious prisoners. You know that I tell the story in my book about the Siberian Seven, the seven Siberian Pentecostals who were holed up in the basement of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow for I think five years um, at, under threat of being thrown back in the gulag. Of course, his advocacy for Jewish dissidents like Danton Sharansky, who spent several years in prison just because they had wanted to emigrate to to Israel. Um, and and Reagan would often say uh, when his staff or others would ask him why he believed in the vulnerability of Soviet communism, he'd say, because the people's desire to believe in God, you just cannot uh, quench that for, forever. And that that is so much stronger and more, and more resilient. But the final thing I want to say on what a personal uh, commitment this was for Reagan is, as you know from the book, um, as he built a partnership with Gorbachev and even a friendship with Gorbachev, working to reduce the threat of nuclear war, working to you know reduce tensions in the Cold War, Reagan was personally grieved that Gorbachev was an atheist. Reagan, you know, worried about Gorbachev's soul. And so in their you know, their final summit meeting, Reagan spends a lot of time trying to persuade Gorbachev to believe in God. And it's um Whatever else you may think of this, it is very unusual. You know, most superpower summits do not involve, uh, you know, evangelistic talks, right, or efforts to believe, you know, uh, to persuade the atheistic leader to believe in God. But Reagan was not doing this for any political gain. It was just his his very genuine personal commitment. And so I, uh, that was also a really remarkable part of the story to me. Uh, what a great answer. Well, we'll come back to Reagan's relationship with Gorbachev later in the conversation. But I, I want to take up your description and analysis of the multi-pronged strategy that manifested itself out of the convictions that we've already talked about. The the book outlines a strategy including military buildup, deliberate economic pressure, ideological competition, and support for armed anti-communist movements around the world. Some of these different elements would be familiar to Reagan enthusiasts or, or Cold War observers, but you bring them together 
in such an insightful way. And in particular, they formed the, the basis of your argument that Reagan's strategy was ultimately designed to achieve the Soviets, quote, negotiated surrender. Let me ask a two-part question. First, how did Reagan pull the levers of policymaking across the U.S. government in such a coherent direction? And second, can you talk a bit about his conception of a negotiated surrender? Okay, sure thing. So, um, and that was a great summary you just gave there of his overall, overall, overall strategy. So first, um, on, on how he pulled the levers of U.S. government to get all these different, uh, elements moving in the, the same, same direction. Um, this was a real challenge for him. Uh, even though he was, I make the case that he was a strategic visionary, he was not a very good manager. Uh, that was one of his liabilities or weaknesses. And even though he hired a lot of very capable people as his cabinet secretaries and main aides, they often didn't get along very well with each other. Uh, so those were two challenges that, that Reagan had, you know, these, you know, strong, capable people with with big egos uh, and and sometimes different visions. But part of the secret was where he cared about an issue, and he certainly did on the strategy with the Soviets. He would get more personally involved, and so he um, he pushed the State Department to make sure that they were carrying out his um, his vision of uh, diplomatic outreach to the Soviets, but also advocating for human rights and for the release of uh, peaceful dissidents, uh, prisoners of conscience. Uh, he put a lot of his political capital into increasing the defense budget, supported the military modernization, right? You know, there was certainly some resistance in, in Congress to that, but um, he, he devoted a lot of time to that. He gave the CIA uh, tremendous support, including even when it came at political cost to, to him uh, for, for in turn supporting anti communist uh, insurgents and fighter, fighters around the world. Uh, one, one symbolic one that my friend and colleague Mark Pomar point, pointed out to me is um, because Reagan took the battle of ideas so seriously, he put a lot of resources into broadcasting efforts, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, to you know break through the information uh, monopoly behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and, and so Reagan personally visited the headquarters of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. He's one of only two presidents, along with uh, John F. Kennedy to have ever ever done so as well as you know like tripling their budget so that was part of it is he just you know he put personal energy into these things but also by hiring uh and empowering very capable people you know cap weinberger was a very capable energetic secretary of defense george schultz of course was a formidable secretary of state i think one of our greatest ever bill casey uh, again very energetic effective cia director uh, so he would put really capable people in charge and, and empower them and say, all right, you've, here's the mission, go out and execute it. And they, and they would. Now they would often, like I said, bicker with each other. And so that slowed things down some. But then your second question about negotiated surrender, I'll be, give, put this one a little more briefly. Um, uh, I try to make clear in the book that throughout his two terms as president, Reagan was very consistently pursuing two prongs of pressure on the Soviet Union. We talked about that and diplomatic outreach to the Soviet Union. From the very beginning, he wanted to extend the hand of diplomacy and say, let's negotiate. Uh, and uh, and now the Soviets did not reciprocate that much at all in his first term. But then once Gorbachev comes to power in 1985, they, they, they do reciprocate. And so negotiated surrender is my summation of how Reagan wanted to collapse that system, but wanted to do it to do it peacefully. He wanted to keep the Cold War cold. He did not want to let it turn hot, you know, and, and into a nuclear exchange that would that would destroy destroy the world. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. 
Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let me take up, Will one part of that two-pronged approach. Canadian listeners will be familiar with the controversy of the so-called Star Wars program. You make the case, though, that Reagan's emphasis on developing an anti-ballistic capacity further put the Soviets on the technological defensive. What's its significance in your broader story? Yeah, the Star Wars program, or the technical name for it is the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, SDI, more of a mouthful, is profoundly important to the peaceful end of the Cold War and to Reagan's strategy. And, you know, as you point out, it was widely criticized at the time. So he announces it in March of 1983, this vision of a defensive shield uh, of a anti-missile system that would uh, protect the United States, will protect North America, you know, would have protected Canada too, uh, from uh, any incoming so- uh, so- Soviet b- ballistic missiles. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, a very elaborate proposal, very, very expensive. Reagan himself, when he announced it, knew that this was uh, a generation-long effort. He didn't expect that it would be, you know, invented and become operational during his presidency in the next few years. But as part of his vision, he wanted to get away from this doctrine of mutual assured destruction, uh, which, uh, again, you know, for your listeners that may not be familiar, was uh, the doctrine that had, uh, emerged during the Cold War, uh, where the Soviets had their massive nuclear arsenal, the United States had ours, and the way that we um, ensured that they wouldn't attack us is we threatened, if you launch against us, we'll launch against you, and we'll wipe out, you know, wipe out your entire country and kill all your people. And in a perverse way, for a few decades, it had worked, right? There was not a nuclear exchange between the two societies. But Reagan looked closer at that, and he said, this is insanity. Like, we are – our whole uh, strategy to protect our people depends on a threat to incinerate the entire planet. And then what about the risk? What if there is a misperception, a misunderstanding, an accidental launch, uh, or, you know, a Soviet leader who comes to power who thinks he – who's willing to risk take – take a risk on this? And so that's why with SDI, Reagan wanted to break out of that entire framework and say, how about instead of threatening to, to kill everybody, we worked more on protecting people, you know, protecting innocent lives. Um, now, the critics were very uh, opposed to SDI for two reasons. One, a lot of scientists said, you know, this is a waste of money. It just it just won't work, uh, certainly not in the near term. And none of those of the more traditional arms control and foreign policy establishment worried that it could be destabilizing. And we can talk later about, you know, some of the reasons why. But um, but Reagan held to it, not that he was unaware of those criticisms or concerns, but he thought that this could be a way to change that strategic equation in the Cold War. And uh, I'm convinced from the research for my book that it worked for a very key reason. Gorbachev and the Soviets were terrified of it. And when you read the transcripts of Reagan's meetings with Gorbachev, Gorbachev is just obsessed with SDI and wants to do anything he can to get the United States to, to end it or withdraw it. And Reagan, as a good negotiator, realized that as well. And so, you know, not to be overly simplistic, but uh, one of my conclusions is it doesn't really matter whether SDI was going to work or not. 
well, all that matters is SDI, is that Gorbachev thought it could work, right? You know, so there, there may have been an elaborate bluff going on. Now, to fast forward today, not to get into much current events, but when you look at the Ukrainians and their defenses against Russian missile attacks and how, I don't know the exact numbers, but something like four out of five Russian missiles being launched against Ukraine are being shot down now. That is a direct result of Reagan's SDI, right? That is that the missile defenses that we are supplying uh, the Ukrainians with now are were really you know, birthed out of Reagan's initial SDI research program. So his vision for it later did come to fruition, of course, you know, a few decades after the old, the old Cold War. Um, so anyway, it's a very, very important part of the story. A kind of foundational part of the story related to SDI is how Reagan thought about the threat of nuclear weapons. And it's a subject where he finds himself both antagonizing Cold War hawks and the anti-nuclear lobby to his left. Do you want to talk about the way in which Reagan thought about nuclear weapons and the extent to which it really at a, a fundamental level was a kind of moral issue for him? Yes, and I can't stress this uh, enough. Reagan was a nuclear abolitionist. He wanted to eliminate and abolish all nuclear weapons. And that was something that he had believed for decades before he even became president. And this is not as widely known about him as, as it should be, but he was, um, he was terrified of nuclear war. Uh, he thought these weapons were just a, a ghastly affront to human, human existence, right? This is partly why he had, um, tried to develop the SDI system we mentioned, we mentioned earlier. But where he parted ways with a lot of the peace protesters of the day and the nuclear freeze movement is it wasn't just nuclear weapons alone that uh, terrified Reagan. What he was really worried about was nuclear weapons in the hands of the Kremlin, in the hands of a malevolent government that you know meant, meant harm and wished ill on the on the on the free world. And so his strategy in putting pressure on the Soviet Union for that negotiated surrender was to crack apart Soviet communism, but also have a negotiating partner to. Uh, reduce and eventually eliminate all nuclear weapons. Uh, and Gorbachev eventually comes to see, have the same vision as Reagan. And, and in a couple of their summits, they come very close to agreeing to abolish all nuclear, all nuclear weapons. Uh, ultimately they don't, but they do agree to the INF treaty, eliminating some of the most dangerous nuclear weapons, the intermediate range uh, nuclear missiles. And that, you know, to this day remains the only treaty in history, abolishing an entire class of, of nuclear, nuclear weapons. Um, and so that's a very important part of his legacy as you mentioned, he took a lot of heat from and criticism from his own more hard right base for that. Uh, and then from some of the realists, you know, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger thought Reagan was kind of crazy to be pursuing this vision of a nuclear nuclear free world. But we need to remember that equation is he wanted to eliminate Soviet communism and then eliminate nuclear nuclear weapons. He worried if you only eliminate nukes, but you still have Soviet communism, it still leaves Western Europe vulnerable to conventional uh, you know, invasion by a, a conventional army. You write that Reagan came to see Mikhail Gorbachev as a, quote, partner for peace. Why don't you talk a bit about their relationship and Gorbachev's role in your story? Sure. Yeah. And Gorbachev is, uh, you know, the other lead character in the in the book, along with Reagan, of course. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's a remarkable relationship the two, that the two develop. Um, you know, Gorbachev is the uh, first Soviet leader that Reagan actually meets with while he's president. You know, as he has famous line, he'd wanted to meet with the three prior ones, but they they kept dying on me. Interestingly, for our Canadian listeners, um, 
uh, your former prime minister, Brian Mulroney, plays a key role in this, too, because um, in March of 85, when Gorbach- when Chernyenko dies and Gorbachev comes to power, Mulroney is uh, you know relatively new for, uh, prime minister of Canada at the time. And he travels to the funeral and he meets Gorbachev, this new leader. And then a few days later, Mulroney meets with Reagan, hosts him in, in Ottawa for the Shamrock Summit. And Mulroney gives Reagan um, a really interesting briefing on Gorbachev because Reagan hadn't met him yet. And Mulroney's one of the you know first leaders to tell Reagan, uh, you're going to be interested in this guy, Gorbachev. I think there's you know a potential real reformer and partner there. And of course, Reagan held Mulroney in such high regard uh, and uh, certainly paid heed to his, his counsel. So, you know, there are other people encouraging Reagan to get to know Gorbachev, too. But I just I, I think that it's an important indicator of the importance of um, the U.S.-Canada relationship and the Reagan-Mulroney relationship. But anyway, uh, but at the same time, Reagan, from when he first took office four years earlier, part of his strategy towards the Soviets was pressuring them to produce a reformist leader. So Reagan himself had been looking for someone like a Gorbachev to come along. Um Another reason why he was a little more uh, willing to to embrace him, and then over the you know the next four years they they start as wary rivals, right? They have fierce differences. Even though Gorbachev is reform minded, he still wants to preserve Soviet communism. Reagan wants to eliminate Soviet communism, right? But they are both committed to reducing the threat of nuclear nuclear war, of uh, of reducing tensions in in the Cold War, and they they end up building, like I said, a very uh, moving friendship, even while having some significant political differences. Um, as you probably recall from the book, Sean, uh, part of where I get the title, The Peacemaker, comes from Gorbachev. That's the tribute he pays to, uh, to Reagan at, at Reagan's death. He said this man decided at the right time to be a peacemaker. Uh, and so it's um, it's, a, it's a, a relationship really uh, unique in the annals of, of world history, I think. I want to take up Reagan's broader relationships with American allies. You write in the book that, quote, no president before or since has been more devoted to allies than Reagan. How did this manifest itself, Will? And why was this so important in the context of the Cold War? Yeah, again, hugely important. Uh, so part of it comes from Reagan's own background. Remember, you know, he he's a, a child of the Great Depression of the 1930s. And then, of course, the World War II generation, even though he didn't see combat himself. Very for, World War II is very formative for him. And that's when he had first appreciated the importance of the, the you know, the Grand Alliance, uh, the allies in defeating totalitarianism. Right. You know, especially uh, Churchill's friendship and partnership with, with FDR. And so uh, so from the beginning, Reagan saw allies as a unique source of American strength. He knew that America's allies are voluntary, right? Our allies choose to be with us. You know, no one forces you to join NATO um, or no one, you know, forces you to, you know, uh, have an alliance with Japan or South Korea or Australia, some of our others. Uh, And he, and in contrast, he knew that the Warsaw Pact, those were not voluntary allies. You know, those were countries, you know, occupied by the the Soviet Union and victims of Soviet Soviet imperialism. Um, And, and because because Reagan saw the Cold War as a battle of ideas and suffused with values, uh, he wanted allies who shared those values, a commitment to open societies, to pluralism, to tolerance, to democracy, to, to free markets. And, and finally, he just devoted a ton of 
personal attention to building relationships with allied leaders. I mean, there's this, by his second term, there's this wonderful quintet that emerges. Uh, you know, of course, it's Reagan, it's Prime Minister Mulroney in Canada, it's Margaret Thatcher in the UK, it's Helmut Kohl in West Germany, and it's Yasuhiro Nakasone in Japan. And those five leaders, uh, again, all committed to uh, market economies at home and a strong stance against communism uh, abroad, build a deep friendship, are able to you know, overcome some um, uh, political and diplomatic differences between their countries out of that uh, that deep personal commitment to each other and to the alliance. This is why Reagan's able to forge that um, uh, only the second bilateral free trade agreement in American history with Canada uh, because of his commitment to Milroney and to Canada as as an ally. And so, you know, even though allies can be nettlesome and frustrating and there's going to be differences and frictions all the time for Reagan at the end of the day, it's almost like a marriage. You know, you're, you're not going to get along all the time. You're not going to agree on everything, but it starts with that foundational permanent commitment and knowing that you are better together than better apart. As we get close to wrapping up, Will, if I could turn the conversation looking forward a bit and drawing on the profound experiences and lessons that you outline in the book, there's a lot of debate right now about whether the Cold War frame fits America's growing geopolitical and technological rivalry with China. What's your view? And either way, what lessons can contemporary policymakers derive from Reagan's strategy? Yeah, I've been getting this question a lot, and it's a very good one. I've given it a lot of thought. I'll try to give a couple top lines since I know our, our, our time is limited. I could go on forever with this. Um, uh, the, the first is I have to issue the disclaimer that there are some important differences between, you know, uh, the free world's contest with China now and the, and the, fir- the first Cold War. And the most, there's, you know, I won't rattle them all off, but the most fundamental one, of course, is the deep economic interdependence between the United States and and China, between Canada Canada and China. We never had that with with the Soviet Union. Uh, And that creates all sorts of complications, whether it's, you know, supply chain vulnerabilities uh, or just the vulnerabilities of our economic system uh, or, uh, you know, reliance on uh, collaborative uh, research projects and, and production lines. That said, I have in the last year or two um, decided uh, that I am comfortable saying we are in a new Cold War. I think there's more similarities than differences. And so as a shorthand, however imperfect, that is a good paradigm to think about our contest with with China. Um, uh, because, you know, it is a, uh, as with the previous Cold War, it's a competition and rivalry among multiple fronts, right? There's the military dimension, the diplomatic dimension, the economic dimension, uh, and the battle of ideas dimension. You know, China is defined by the one-party rule of the Chinese Communist Party. And even though they've done some market reforms, they are still Leninist. They are still repressive of independent religious belief, right? They are still dogmatic ideologues. You know, we've seen this with Xi Jinping trying to, you know, resurrect Maoist Maoist thought. Um, And it's taking place all over the globe. It's not just, you know, a competition in the Western Pacific, but it's taking place a competition for influence on every continent. And so my, you know, advice for policymakers today and lessons to take from the Reagan playbook is you've got to start with getting the theory of the case right, the overall strategic theory of the case. Uh, And Reagan got that right about the old one being a battle of ideas uh, that involve all elements of national power and, you know, kind of a whole of society effort. Uh, I think that's the same case uh, today. We we need to have a similar theory of the case for the competition with China. But I should also stress 
you know, one of Reagan's great successes in the first Cold War was, as I mentioned, keeping it cold and bringing it to a peaceful victory. And we certainly want that to be the case with China. None of us want to see an absolutely disastrous hot war between uh, our countries and, and, and China. And so escalating the competition, bringing a lot more pressure to bear on them needs to happen. But there also need to be some of those diplomatic outlets and a commitment to to not letting it turn into a hot war. It's a it's a very it's a very difficult path ahead. As I read the book, Will, I was struck by the way that Reagan's view about the role of American power in the world contrasts with a lot of the energy and fervor in Republican politics and even parts of the American conservative movement. What do you think is behind the tendency towards global withdrawal? And how can the party and the movement rediscover Reagan's confident global orientation? Yeah, you know, and and Sean, as you know from reading the book, I, I wrote it as a pure history, right? You know, I don't conclude with ten lessons from Reagan for today or anything. Um, but I, I say that by way of preface. I do hope readers reading it today, especially Republicans in, in the United States, will see that this is a a better model uh for Republican foreign policy, for American foreign policy, for America's engagement in the world. You know, looking over the last century, there are these recurring cycles in American history of of isolationist impulses. Um, yeah, I won't give a lengthy history lesson on it, but let's just, you know, suffice to say, we see it in the 1930s. We see it again in the 1950s with, with Robert Taft trying to keep the United States out of NATO and out of the Marshall Plan and out of our other alliances. Uh, we saw some of it in the, in the 1970s, especially in the wake of the Vietnam War. We saw, frankly, some of it in the 1990s with the Pat Buchanan movement after the end of the Cold War, uh, and even saying we shouldn't have fought World, World War II. Um, and so it's not a surprise that it would have returned today. You know, uh, obviously, we've had the very um, difficult experiences with Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, you know, one can point to different failures by the United States on the world scene. But I think Reagan shows us, uh, well, two things. One, we have to consider the alternative. And sometimes the only thing worse than being leading internationally engaged and leading in the world is not being involved in the world, right? Because if you see the playing field to China and Russia, we see we see what happens there. But Reagan shows that it's possible for the United States to renew itself, uh, to believe in itself again, to to grow its economy again, to to revitalize its alliances, especially with you know our, our most important hemispheric partner in in Canada. And to help uh, push back against totalitarian aggression, whether it was of Nazi Germany in the 1940s or the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 80s or communist China and imperialist Russia today. Let me just slide one final question in because this has just been such a engaging conversation. I have all of these ideas kind of swirling in my mind, Will. You know, maybe I can try to piece them together. One is the kind of power of individuals and the importance of agency in history. You know, there's been a backlash against so-called Whiggish history in a lot of academic circles. But I mean, it's not an accident that it's Reagan who enters the political arena in this kind of crucial moment with this core set of convictions about the winnability of, of the Cold War. There's also the kind of power of being a happy warrior, both domestically and globally in terms of that alliance building and so on. You know, I, I don't want to sound negative, but it just seems like for a set of social and cultural and political reasons, there seems to be a an impediment to someone like Reagan emerging in today's political environment. I, I don't know if you want to respond to that set of disparate ideas, but I, I guess fundamentally, how can we 
rediscover not a nostalgia for Reagan, but Reagan had that, what did he had that famous line about how he didn't want to go back to the past, he wanted to go back to the past way to seeing the future? How do we create the conditions for someone like that to reemerge in, in light of today's domestic and geopolitical challenges? Yeah, the, the, this question has been coming up a lot, Sean, over the last few weeks as I've, you know, I've been getting different responses to, to my book. And, you know, two, two thoughts there. Um, first is thank you for highlighting the importance of individual leadership. That is, you know, as you know, a clear message of the book is I, I want to disabuse readers of what I call the inevitability fallacy, the, the sense of, well, we know now, of course, the Cold War would end peacefully. Of course, the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Uh, you know, uh, that was not apparent at the time. And, and I, I don't think it was inevitable at the time. I think, uh, you know, there's a complicated array of factors going into this. You know, look, I, I don't want to be overly simplistic here, but I do think. Reagan shows how individual leadership uh, can be a really decisive factor uh, in in changing the direction of world events. But the, you know that brings me to to the second point is he is a rather unique figure. Um, uh, you know I don't know that a another one like him would would emerge today. I I I, I wish it were I wish it were so. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that uh, some of his attributes or models or characteristics can't be emulated today. Um, you know per, uh, not being afraid to challenge the status quo but seeing politics as the art of persuasion and inspiration more than the art of division and sub- and subtraction, right? I mean, so even though he would plant a clear flag about where he stood, he wanted to invite and persuade as many of the American people and global audiences to come along behind him as, as possible, right? Um, you know, this is why he put so much effort into his 1984 re-election and wins 49 states, including lots and lots of Democrats voting for him. Uh, because even if people didn't agree with him on all policies, they thought this guy's operating a more hopeful vision for the future. I've seen some early returns on those policies, and I, I want to continue to, to give give him a chance. Um, and so, you know, a politics of hope and optimism will almost always trump a, a politics of fear and and, and division. Uh, and, and not that Reagan was... Uh, you know, blind to the real challenges in America, uh, or, you know, whether it was on, you know, restoring the economy or the severity of the Soviet threat or our nation's, you know, past wounds of, uh, racial discrimination, you know, any number of issues we could, we could talk about there. But at the end of the day, he still believed in the, the American experiment, the value of the American system, the value of the free world overall, again, going back to his commitment to our important allies like, like Canada. Um, and those are timeless principles. Those, those are not ones that were only unique to the 1980s. And I, I think it uh, they certainly bear looking back and uh, perhaps drawing some inspiration from today. Here, here, Lehman Bowden, Executive Director of the Clement Center for National Security and Associate Professor of Public Affairs and History at the LBJ School, both at the University of Texas, Austin, and the author of the wonderful new book, Must Read, Must Buy, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. 
The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.